We were all expecting 2021 to be a fresh new year. But from the looks of all the breaking news we saw this week, 2021 just told 2020 to hold its beer. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. It was a fairly singular day in American history. We'll learn about the recently discovered variant of the coronavirus. It's been dubbed the B117 variant. And we'll talk to columnist Chris Churchill about the Buffalo Bills. You know, the virus is probably at its most dangerous stage since at least March in New York, and all of a sudden we're allowed to have fans at a game again. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's jump right into it. It was a week. We are here with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. We're going to go over some top headlines. Now, we are talking just after noon on Thursday, and that is just about 24 hours after a violent mob of President Trump supporters broke into the United States Capitol and went on a rampage that disrupted uh, the ceremonial congressional proceedings that were to certify President-elect Joe Biden's win. Now, a lot has happened in the past 24 hours, and I think it's fair to say there have been a dizzying amount of headlines. They come at us kind of fast and furious. But uh, to drill down, let's start with the latest that affects the Capitol region. What happened at the U.S. Capitol yesterday was an insurrection against the United States incited by President Trump. Uh, Soon-to-be Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York and several other Capital Region Congress members are calling for the invocation of the 25th Amendment. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, uh, all the way up to Chuck Schumer, who, as you noted, is only two weeks away from becoming the majority leader of the U.S. Senate after the two Democratic runoff wins in Georgia. Uh, all the way down, and I don't mean to be pejorative uh, about it, to um, Assemblywoman Patricia Fahey from right here in Albany have released statements calling for the vice president and the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment. And so I believe the president is dangerous and should not hold office one day longer. And the 25th Amendment you know, basically uh, allows for the temporary sidelining of a president who is found to not be able to perform his duties. And there are many voices, especially on the Democratic side of the aisle, who believe that what occurred on Wednesday in the nation's capital shows that President Trump needs to be removed from office, that he is presenting basically a danger to the republic in the way that he encouraged the mob that descended on the uh, U.S. Capitol at midday after the rally where he spoke and then was 
rather lackluster in his denunciation of the violence that occurred there and apparently had to be convinced to make a statement. And in that statement, repeated the lie that he had been cheated out of the election and said that he loved the protesters there. And um, it was a fairly singular day in American history. And I don't know about you, Jess, but I am tired of living in uh, interesting times. Yes, yes. And my eyes have gotten crossed from keeping them glued to my Twitter feed, for sure. (laughs) Now, another Capital Region uh, lawmaker, Representative Elise Stefanik, who represents the North Country and parts of the Capital Region, she also made news yesterday. Tens of millions of Americans are concerned that the 2020 election featured unconstitutional overreach by unelected state officials and judges ignoring state election laws. We can and we should peacefully and respectfully discuss these concerns. Talk us through what happened with her. Yeah, well, after the riot, um, some members of Congress who had previously said that they were going to go ahead with this sort of fearic victory, you know, an empty gesture objecting to the state certified uh, voting results of the presidential election. Some of them backed off. Stefanik was among those, among several who decided to go ahead. Stefanik claimed that she was objecting because of questions that had been raised about the vote tally in four states. Her arguments, as presented in an open letter to her constituents, included obviously a number of objections that had been roundly debunked by uh, state officials in those four states. All of them, of course, have been rejected by the courts. She also tossed in a couple of claims that were just uh, false on their face. They're not backed up by any evidence, including a claim that 140,000 people who cast ballots in Georgia or ballots that were cast in Georgia were cast by people who were deceased, who didn't live in Georgia, who were otherwise ineligible. Curiously, and we have asked her office to explain what she's basing that on, she did not repeat that claim on the floor of the chamber. And she has taken a great deal of criticism, including from the Times Union's editorial board, for her decision to be among those uh, going ahead with this attempt to overturn the will of the people. So I might add that the Times Union editorial board released its own statement uh, calling for invocation of the 25th Amendment. Do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah. uh, You know, it's fairly rare, believe it or not, for a newspaper, um, especially a a mainstream paper such as the Times Union, to call for the president to either resign or be removed. But the editorial board felt that that was the only appropriate response, uh, just as Chuck Schumer did, as Patricia Fahey did, as you know, so many other folks have uh, now called on Thursday for the president to either resign or be or be removed. I don't think uh, the Times Union's editorial is necessarily going to tilt the needle in the direction of anybody invoking the Twenty Fifth Amendment, but. It's important for um, the paper's editorial voice, which once again, as you know, you and I have discussed before, is different from our news coverage to go on the record in historic times and and stand up for what we believe is um, the right call. You can go back and listen to an excellent episode of this podcast on that very topic. Uh, and you can also read our ongoing coverage of everything going on in Washington by our stellar Capitol correspondent, Emily Munson. 
bringing it back to Albany a little bit, the events of yesterday in Washington did have some ripple effects here in New York. There were some incidents outside the New York state capitol. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, there was um, a violent encounter between Trump supporters and counter protesters in which Uh, One of the Trump supporters uh, was stabbed. I think actually two people were taken to the hospital, one for a fairly serious uh, stab wound that required fairly complex surgery. That was occurring almost uh, at the exact same time the state legislature was gaveling in um, for the first session of the year. Of course, it's a strange session. You have widescreen TVs that are uh, set up on the floor for the lawmakers who are appearing virtually. Andrea Stewart-Cousins, you know, now leading a Democratic supermajority in the state Senate, was there as well. She is the first Democratic leader to run a second consecutive uh, majority conference in something like, I think it's something like eight decades. And of course, all of this, all of this, like Chuck Schumer becoming majority leader, just seemed to get sort of swept aside by everything that was that was going on in D.C., despite the fact that the state in this legislative session and Governor Andrew Cuomo, who will be giving his state of the state address on Monday, and of course not before a big crowd like he usually does, the state faces you know significant challenges, almost all of them brought about by the coronavirus pandemic. There's a massive budget deficit. There are serious questions about the vaccine rollout and executive power that the legislature has conferred on the governor since the crisis began nine months ago. But right now, of course, all eyes are are on Washington, D.C., not on Albany. And on that note, Governor Andrew Cuomo also pledged to send about a thousand National Guard troops down to Washington to help with the what, what did he say, the peaceful transition of power? Correct. And that's quite something for a state, several states away to send National Guard troops down, you know, not for a natural disaster, but for civic unrest. You know, it is, uh, you know, it is similar in uh, tragedy to the fact that yesterday you saw nations bemoaning uh, what was going on in Washington and hoping that there would, in fact, be uh, a peaceful transition of power. Those are the type of statements that uh, this nation's government usually makes about elections and transitions of power in banana republics. It's a fairly you know, sad week on a lot of different scores. So with all this talk about, you know, what's going on in Washington, I dare say, you know, the news that has been dominating our headlines for the last 10 months might have gotten slightly buried. I don't know. Uh, the pandemic. <laughs> haven't even spoken about the fact that the UK variant of COVID-19 was uncovered in New York State for the first time among the uh, staff of a jewelry store in Saratoga Springs. That news came to light on Monday, and it seems like it was about a month ago. Yeah, it seems like an eternity. And we will have more on that from our health reporter, Bethany Bump, later in this podcast. But I did want to highlight the fact that the Capital Region continues to have one of the highest COVID positivity rates in the state, right? Correct. And uh, lots of people are speculating that um, the reason for that spike might potentially be because of the UK strain. Although, of course, that has to be kind of borne out by testing. 
And yet at the same time, we continue to hear stories about parties uh, that result in super spreader events. Um, you know, there was a group of Trump supporters who uh, uh, were bussed down to D.C. to be at the at the Wednesday rally. I mean, I don't know of anybody who wants to be on a packed, you know, travel coach uh, for six hours each way. But there you go. Yeah, the idea of getting on a bus or a plane kind of makes me shudder these days. This has been a a very packed week, as I said. One more story that we're going to take a look at is kind of a strange one. A local man who's facing federal prison time forged letters from Representative Elise Stefanik's office. Can you tell us what's going on there? Well, a a gentleman named Michael Fish, who's really not a gentleman, considering that the crimes that he pleaded guilty to back in May involve scores of cases of cribbing uh, private information from women that allowed him to access their private email and other, you know, personal sites, uh, pulling down embarrassing photos, manufacturing pornographic images using these women's um, uh, pictures, that type of thing. He pleaded guilty in May. His sentencing was scheduled for uh, next week, I believe, before federal judge uh, May D'Agostino right here in Albany. He went to SUNY Plattsburgh, where a lot of the abuses that he pleaded guilty to occurred. Now, before sentencing, judges sort of ask for letters that might speak to a person's good character, whether or not they deserve leniency, perhaps. Now, Rob Gavin, our outstanding Cops and Courts reporter, was going through the files in uh, Mr. Fish's case and found a letter seeking leniency for Mr. Fish from a top aide to the aforementioned uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Now, considering the level of um, tormenting of women that Mr. Fish has admitted to uh, taking part in, Rob thought that was kind of strange. So he called up Stefanik's office to ask about this letter. And after a little while, after another Stefanik aide went to this aide and asked about it, Rob was told, that letter was fraudulent. It turns out that Mr. Fish took a very innocuous letter of recommendation for, I believe, an academic program that this Stefanik aide had written for him long before Mr. Fish's criminal troubles came to light and put basically a new top and tail on the letter saying, I'm sure you know he'll put these problems behind him. I think he can really turn out to be a you know a great member of society, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Rob was asking those questions on Thursday. On Friday, Mr. Fish was arrested, rearrested, and thrown in the clink, uh, alleged to have uh, fabricated that letter on, I believe, his grandfather's computer, which of course violated the terms of his release. Now, earlier this week, Rob, of course, went back through the letters and discovered two more that were fabricated. One that appears to have been made up from whole cloth and another that um, once again mixed sort of a genuine letter of recommendation with new material. That one written by a priest in the Albany Diocese. Those last two letters, Mr. Fish has not yet been accused of, um, of fabricating but we'll continue to look at that story. But it's it's just another example of Rob Gavin's good you know, enterprise reporting. Indeed. And you can hear more from Rob Gavin and yourself as well on our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. All right, Casey, I, I'm going to say I hope next week isn't as, what's the word I'm looking for here, interesting as, as this week was, but I doubt that will be the case. So don't jinx us. 
Yeah. So we'll talk to you next week, Casey. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. The Capital Region currently has one of the highest COVID-19 positivity rates in the state. It also played host to the first recorded case of the COVID-19 variant, better known as the UK variant, this week. An employee of a Saratoga Springs jewelry store was confirmed to have the variant. To better understand what that means for the region and its battle with the pandemic, I spoke to Times Union Health reporter Bethany Bump. There's a new variant of the coronavirus out there. Before we dive into how it's affecting the region, what exactly are we dealing with here? A variant strain of coronavirus is essentially you have the original SARS-CoV-2 virus that we're all used to. And the way that it was explained to me by an epidemiologist is that basically this virus, like every virus, replicates. And during the replication process, there will be errors, um, as that's the case with a, a lot of different replication processes. So those errors over time, if you have enough errors in that process, that can add up to to basically make that strain of virus noticeably different from the old one. Um, and so that's what we're dealing with here. It's been dubbed the B117 variant. And scientists have said there's no evidence that this variant is more deadly, more severe, but it does appear to be spreading much more quickly than the uh, than the original coronavirus strain that we're all used to. Okay, so there's a new variant, and it has been found in the capital region. And in fact, technically, this is the first discovery of it in the entire state, right? Yes, this is the first time that the variant was detected in New York, but there there are a lot of theories that it's it might have been here for a while. So this this case that they found in Saratoga Springs um in an employee of a of a jewelry store in Saratoga is probably not the first one. This man who has the variant, he had reported no recent travel. So the assumption and implication of that is that community spread of the variant is probably underway. So we only just started testing for this variant, right? There's, it's a compl- not a completely different, but it's a different test, right? Yeah, it was explained to me that it's, it's, um, it's not as simple as just the everyday coronavirus test that you see. So basically for, for research purposes, for pandemic response in general, um, state health laboratories have been um, sequencing the coronavirus from random samples that they get submitted to them by hospitals and labs. And basically the, the sequence allows them to detect any sort of mutations or, or strains like we've seen now with this UK variant. But the level of sequencing that has been going on in the US has been pretty low, especially compared to, to other countries. And in fact, an epidemiologist I spoke with said he thinks that the reason that this B117 variant was first detected in the UK is just because they have a much more robust sequencing program and they, they also use a centralized program. So all the various private laboratories and public laboratories can submit their results into the central database. So um, that is why people think this might have been here already, because the the level of our testing for these variants has just been so low. Do you see it growing? 
at all in light of recent events? Yeah. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has already said that it wants to double down on the amount of samples that it's sequencing. And I think they said they want to, to give you an example of just how small these levels are, I think they said that they want to go from sequencing 3,000 samples a week to uh, about 6,500 a week. We're seeing many, many more cases of coronavirus than that. That's that's just so small compared to the number of positive coronavirus cases we're seeing. One number I, I heard was that the U.S. has sequenced um, only about 51,000 coronavirus samples to date. We've had more than 20 million infections in the U.S. So that oh, wow. kind of gives you an example of just how small of a pool that that really is. And I asked the state health department yesterday, you know, how many samples have you guys been sequencing? And they told me that nearly 5,000 samples have been sequenced to date throughout the pandemic. And in New York, you know, we're seeing more than 10,000 positive tests a day right now. So they did say that they, quote unquote, dramatically increased their sequencing in late December after this UK variant was found. But, you know, based on the numbers that they gave me, the increase was not meaningful enough to dramatically, you know, boost that sample size or anything. Wow, that's a scary headline anyway you cut it. <laughs> yeah. um, so you said before that it is not necessarily more deadly, but it is more contagious um, does the vaccine that we ha- that the FDA has approved the two vaccines do those guard against it or are we looking at a new vac- another vaccine needing another vaccine? Pretty much everybody right now is saying that it's too soon to tell. They they need more data, but they have a lot of belief that the vaccines that are currently being rolled out are going to protect against this new strain that's being seen. But basically, what scientists have said is like you would need a lot more mutations to this virus than what we're currently seeing with this strain for it to have any sort of meaningful impact on on a vaccine. Ah, that's interesting. So is it likely, are we likely to see more variants of it before all is said and done then? We already have. (laughs) (laughs) Surprised! Yeah, I I mean, um, we are just now hearing about another variant in South Africa and um, there apparently has been another variant reported in Nigeria. There's, there's no evidence that any of these new variants um, are more deadly, more severe. Um, but apparently the, the one in South Africa is similar to the UK one in that it appears to be spreading much more easily. Interesting. Interesting. Again, scary, no matter how, which way you, you look at it. Now, you know, bringing this kind of home to the capital region, we talked about how, you know, this first identified case happened in Saratoga Springs. Um, what are you hearing from hospitals about, you know, preparation to receive more folks as this continues to spread? And, you know, the overall pandemic continues to, to spread based on the cases that we've seen lately. Yeah, so hospitals um, have have expressed confidence that they still have room to take in more patients. There's no mincing words here. Like they're they're worried, right? Because they're already they've already activated their surge plans. They've already had to repurpose new space in their hospitals to accommodate more COVID patients. I mean, the levels 
in the capital region, there's there's well over 400 people hospitalized with COVID already. And our ICU capacity in the state is the lowest right now, and it has been for a couple of days. So it's definitely a concern. Um, I know that they are, in addition to repurposing space for more COVID patients, they're having to pull staff, non-clinical staff from those non-clinical areas to work the bedside in some of these clinical areas. And they're also having to hire agency staff. Again, this is sort of just now happening, but the fact that they're they're having to redeploy staff and, and hire additional staff to accommodate this, I think is pretty telling of where we are right now with COVID in the capital region. After the break, will this be the year the Buffalo Bills get back to the Super Bowl? Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The Buffalo Bills have a historic playoff game at home on Saturday against the Indianapolis Colts. The buzz around the game is huge for two reasons. One, the Bills last made the playoffs in 2017, where they were summarily trounced by the Jacksonville Jaguars. But before then, the NFL team from Western New York endured an almost two-decade playoff drought that left many Bills fans thinking they'd never see their team make it to the Super Bowl ever again in their lifetime. The second reason is that for the first time this season, they'll have fans in the stands. Governor Andrew Cuomo has allowed 6,700 lucky fans to attend the game. That's about 9% of the stadium capacity, provided they all test negative for COVID-19. But Times Union columnist Chris Churchill has a few qualms about this plan. He shared them in a recent column, and I spoke to him about it. Suffice it to say, this is kind of a big deal for Bills fans that A, that the Bills are hosting a home playoff game and that they'd be allowed into the stadium to see an actual game, regardless of whether it's a playoff, right? I mean, the Bills are good for the first time in a very long time this year. I mean, really good. And fans have not been able to see them in person all year. So what is the governor saying then? What is his plan for this? So the governor has made a very special exception, I guess, um, which will allow 6,700 plus fans into the stadium with some very strict protocols and a lot of planning and a whole lot of excuse making. (laughs) But basically, they're going to be tested before they go in. And then there's going to be apparently contact tracing afterwards. You know, they're going to be required to wear the masks in the stadium. They'll be required to sit far apart from each other. I do think there's no public health risk to what they're going to be doing. I, 
you know, six, 7,000 fans in a 75,000 seat stadium, you can space them pretty far, you know? I mean, there's, there's plenty of room is, I guess, the point I'm trying to make. Well, also in, in your column that you, you kind of pointed out that other stadiums around the country um, have been allowing fans into NFL games. And, you know, yeah. at least to my knowledge, we haven't heard any major fallout from that. Right. I mean, there's been this, it's one of the many divides that we've had, not only within this country, but within the world. I mean, as I pointed out in the column, the Toronto Blue Jays played in Buffalo over the summer. And that's because the province of Ontario and the Canadian government weren't allowing games at all. So within this country, yeah, a lot of the southern states, if you turn on college football, you will see fans in the stands. Of course, New York has always been on the stricter side of things. And we still are on the stricter side of things with almost everything else. But for some reason, the governor has decided to make an exception in this one particular case. So you, in your column this week, you were pretty, you know, harsh about why you didn't think this was a great idea. And as you said before, it's not because of public health. So, right. so what's your argument? I have two main arguments. Number one is just the inconsistency of it all. As I said, we feel like we're weather vanes and the governor's whims are blowing different directions depending on the day. You know, and this isn't just about crowds at games or events, but, you know, we, we've just, it seems that the goalposts are always being moved on us. You know, we're told that certain numbers will trigger certain things and then it doesn't happen. And there's just this terrible inconsistency. And I, I do understand how difficult it must be to be in his position to be making these decisions. But, you know, we just experienced a summer where there were relatively few cases and we couldn't go to concerts or people, you know, had their weddings canceled or had to have very small funerals or all these various things. And now suddenly cases are spiking and, you know, the virus is probably at its most dangerous stage since at least March in New York. And all of a sudden we're allowed to have fans at a game again. It just doesn't make any sense. There's no consistency whatsoever. And I just don't think it's too much to ask for some consistency. It's We need to be able just to to know what to expect and what's expected of us. So that's that's one argument. The second argument is just the enormous amount of state resources that went into planning this thing. Um, the governor said that he sent Department of Health employees to other stadiums around the country to see how it can be done safely. We're using apparently going to use 7,000 rapid tests on fans uh, before the game. Meanwhile, as I note in the column, I know two people who recently came down with flu-like symptoms and they both really struggled to find a place where they could get get tested and then waited nearly a week before they got the results. And we're going to use 7,000 rapid tests on fans who presumably don't even have symptoms, aren't even feeling sick. I mean, it's just it's a really bad use of uh, resources. They're spending time on on how to get fans into a Bills football game when it really isn't necessary. There is no reason the fans have to be there. 7,000 fans is not going to make much of a difference in terms of, you know, what the stadium is like. It's still going to be a, a fairly empty place. The Bills have been playing all year successfully without fans there. It is just football at the end of the day. It's not actually life and death important. So why? Why spend any state resources or expend any state resources on this if you don't have to? Have you asked some of the diehard Bills fans if they agree that it's not life and death? The game may be really important to people, but most of the the vast majority, 99.99% of Bills fans will not be there, including most of the season ticket holders, right? It's still just mm-hmm. a very small number of people. 
which is part of the reason why it's not a public health risk. But it's right. just the resources that are going into this are 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 dumb. It just doesn't make any sense. And it's just completely inconsistent with everything else the governor is saying. You know, you can't position yourself as like the adult in the room who says no to the children all the time, you know, when they're begging for candy and then like buy 30 boxes of breakfast cereal one day. It's like you have to be, there has to be some sort of consistency. Sugary breakfast cereal, I should say. Lucky charms, right? <laughs> Lucky not, charms. Yeah, yeah. Not Gosh, an endorsement. Yeah. However, that is my favorite cereal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe you can get them to sponsor the podcast. That wouldn't be the word. Brought to you by Lucky Charms. Um, <laughs> Magically delicious. <laughs> not the worst, not the worst sponsor. Yeah. Now, what is his justification though? How is he defending this move? He, he claims that this is going to be a pilot program where lessons learned from the Bills game experience will somehow allow us to keep restaurants open or maybe to reopen Broadway shows or to do all sorts of other things over the next few months. And to me, that just makes no sense whatsoever. There is no analogy between a 75,000-seat football stadium and you know a 50-seat restaurant. One's outdoors – One's massive. The, the, the two experiences couldn't really be much more different, right? There's no way that you're going to learn a lesson from this Bills game. It's impossible. You, you're going to have uh, rapid testing as people enter restaurants. You're going to do contact tracing for them as they leave. I mean, once it just doesn't, there's no analogy there. And it's, there's really no analogy either with Broadway shows or most other performances because the bills don't have to sell tickets to make money on this. The NFL makes its money on, on TV revenue. Every other performance that you can think of depends on ticket sales and you can't make enough money on ticket on selling. You know, I think it's 9% is the number of, of seats that will be filled for this game. Mm-hmm. No Broadway show, no um, concert can have a 9% capacity and continue on beyond one night. If a Broadway show has 9%, it's 9% full on opening night. They close the next day. You know, it just doesn't work. You can't pay the actors. You can't, you can't pay the heat, the building on that kind of, on that kind of ticket sale. So question then for the future, if this works, you know, if this ostensibly works as in like, you know, it goes off without a hitch. I mean, and the bills win, of course, is this, is this going to be something that you think is going to, is going to expand? If there is another bills home playoff game, and I'm not actually sure if that's, likely or possible but there would only be one more before they would play in the super bowl and which would be somewhere else but i mean i don't know if you've said yes to one i don't know how you say no to the next but like i said i don't know how this would be applicable to anything else if the bills win the super bowl though like yeah wouldn't that be history making (laughs) it would but you know unicorns could also come down and dance from the sky and i (laughs) did you ever watch that x-files episode i i can't remember what season it was it was if fairly early on when the cigarette smoking guy you know they're in the room with all the the guys who are secretly orchestrating you know how things are gonna roll out in the united states i'm working on next month's oscar nominations any preference i couldn't care less what i don't want to see is the bills winning the super bowl as long as i'm alive that doesn't happen could be tough sir Buffalo wants it bad. No, I never saw that. I never saw it, that. You know, the, the idea that government officials are orchestrating the the future of the Buffalo Bills. Hey, I grew up a long-suffering Red Sox fan. I know what it's I know I know what Bills fans are going through and I, I it would be painful not to be able to be there if you're, you know, a season ticket holder or whatever, but I mean that's what fans all around the world are experiencing right now. 
But either way, you know, if they continue to watch the Bills win, it'll be a history-making event. Right. A cause for optimism. Anything is possible if the Bills if the Bills continue to win. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and newsroom. Sound bites from Washington used in this episode are courtesy of C-SPAN.